You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Today it may or may not be a non-com pod rather than a com-com pod. My guest is not technically a comedian and besides I'm trying to sort of play with a bit of a strand. I'm I'm playing with a strand, guys. That's just the kind of uh, online pseudo-marketing babble I'm doing. Um, What I've been considering, as some of you may know, what a lovely uh, glottal stop that was. What I've been considering. Back to Coventry in the mid-90s for me. Um, I am considering doing these uh, podcasts basically tweaking slightly what I do in order that I can do less research and have more fun, think about it less, get less kind of, uh, what's the word, friction, mental friction. If you want to listen to the insiders uh, extras from this episode, um, you'll hear me and Helen talking about my kind of pre-interview research trauma and how it sometimes stops me from getting uh, guests who have done an enormous volume of work. So what I thought was that during the Panny D, or the Pando, as I believe Mark Watson is calling it, that's catching on in our household too, um, during the Panny D, I thought that rather than chase down comedian guests, watch them live, do loads of comedy research, I will instead focus on people whose output I know, uh, some people who aren't necessarily comedians, but uh, also do a slightly different version of a con-con because I can't see people live and I don't really have time during the great pivot to be sitting and watching the normal amount of uh, Netflix specials and so on that I normally would. I want the uh, show to remain uh, expansive and well-researched and all of those things that you love about it, I hope. So I am trying to do this new version. There we go. That's two minutes of absolute guff as I try to explain what I'm doing. Uh, And as we will discover in next week's episode with Brett Goldstein, 
the idea of a non-com pod doesn't really exist. I am what I am and I have the conversations that I have. So please enjoy this one of them with the brilliant Helen Zaltzman, who is uh, was an early kind of podcast mentor of mine. We did some of those, can I buy you a coffee and pick your brains chats back when she was available for that. Uh, she is now in the world of podcasting, one of the uh, most highly targeted people along those lines. Um, she created the Podcaster Support Group, which I would always recommend you go and check out if during the Panny D you are considering starting a podcast. It's uh, absolutely worth its weight in gold simply to spend a day searching through the feed on that page and seeing the sorts of issues that come up time and time and time and time and time and time again and before then contacting your friends who do podcasts such as me and uh, asking penetrating well-researched questions which will get far better responses. But listen, she's not just the podcast queen even though 14 years ago with Ollie Mann she started producing Answer Me This which has been brilliant since then. She is also now the host of the Illusionist podcast on the Radiotopia network and we're going to talk about that, the name, the use of language, how she started off in comedy via a connection to Josie Long, uh, how she managed to work out what it is that she does in a very, very open playing field by being really honest with herself about what her parameters for success really were. I loved this conversation and this and future episodes that I'm recording during the pandemic were and will be streamed live at twitch.tv slash Goldsmith. So you can get over to twitch.tv slash Goldsmith at 1pm on Wednesdays going forward and you can watch my head and the head of my interviewee live as we have a nice chat with each other. Thank you so much to the 50 or so people who turned up to the Brett Goldstein recording yesterday. That episode will go out on Thursday next week. So that's the plan. We record on a Wednesday at one and then the episode goes out in a trimmed and edited podcast form on this feed the following Thursday but not the directly following Thursday a week later this is barely worth getting into I'm just feeling exuberant because I'm excited to bring you this episode with the wonderful Helen Zaltzman Do you find when people interview you as someone who interviews a lot of people or has interviewed a lot of people do you find that you make their lives easier or that you, like I, take over. I start running the interview in the middle of being interviewed in a way that I hope is charming, but I just can't, like I can't help but leave little breaks and say, oh, you could put an edit in here. And <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's it. the most awful backseat driver interviewee. Do you do oh. that or are you a better interviewee? Um, hopefully I do things like if I mess up a sentence, I go back to the sentence and start it again. So it's easier for whoever's editing it. And then if I listen to it and they haven't edited it, I'm pretty <laughs> pissed off. Um, but sometimes I'm interviewed by, say, a student who sounds really, really nervous because they're quite new. And yeah. I just try to put them at ease. And they might not be very good yet, but they're learning. So I just try and give them material that they can do something with. Um, yes. Do but, you ever say great question when it hasn't been a great question? <laughs> in life, in life, <laughs> tons. Um, I, I'm used to getting questions because of Answer Me This. I'm used to getting a lot of questions that are so much worse than anything the average human mind could imagine. Yes. And in yes. volume. Well, this is beautifully, <laughs> you've structured this very neatly. So I think I should, we, should, we should set you up by, I'm trying to work out how you how we came across one another, because at the time you you uh, started making the podcast uh, Answer Me This with Ollie Mann. Mm. When? 
I mean, it must be 10 years ago. It must be oh, more it's than more. Years. Yeah, it was January 2007 we started. So I knew you because around that time and a bit earlier, I had helped Josie Long with her comedy club, the Sunday Night Adventure Club, which you had played. Yes. I think there was one memorable yes. bit where you jumped into a pair of shorts. Oh, I jumped into a pair of pants, actually. Yes, I just yeah. think they probably looked like shorts because I was already wearing pants. Because <laughs> in, in my room, I would have done it without wearing pants. But obviously, you can't I really see. do that at a Josie Long gig, certainly. Well, it, it was quite a small venue and it might all feel a little bit too personal. Uh, <laughs> so I knew you from that. And then you very kindly came along to provide uh, vocals for various jingles and things. Did, did right some beginning. jingles and stings for you. Yes. Um, I remember the only, one I, the only one I remember was being a Cenobite from, uh, <laughs> from Clive Barker's Hellraiser. I remember that more than I remember the jumping into the pants incident. That seems, seems like something I'd have done. Aha, uh-huh, I need um, to dig out that Cenobite one. There's one as well where you play aromatherapy and you go, Helen and Ollie, smell me. It's a very convincing <laughs> performance. Don't know if you've got oh, that in your spotlight profile. So, so who were you prior to that? How did you get into working with Josie and how did you get into... Which came first, working with Josie or podcasting? Well, I knew Josie. We were overlapped at university and I remember meeting her in Edinburgh 2001 where I was doing some plays and she was doing stand-up. She was 19 at the time, which was really young and there are more young stand-ups now than there were then, but she'd been doing stand-up since she was like 14. And I bumped into her a few times and I think she was really lonely and having quite a difficult time, but I didn't really know her then. And I was also kind of in awe of her (laughs) as this 19 year old stand-up. And then I think when we were back at university, I invited her on my student radio show. She'd sent me this very, very sweet letter. Um, I hope she, I kind of hope she's forgotten this, but also that she doesn't mind me bringing it up. After we, (laughs) after Edinburgh, she sent me this really sweet letter. Um, which was her going, in which she thought I was called Catherine and a lot of the letter was about whether she'd spelt Catherine right. (laughs) 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 It was so cute. I hope I've still got it somewhere in my museum. Um, So yeah, I'd I'd known her since then and we'd we'd sort of hung out a lot. And at at the time uh, the club started, we were living very um, nearby and we used to hang out a lot because both of us were underemployed. We used to play Boggle a lot. Um, do a bit of crafting and she said she was going to do this comedy club and I volunteered to make props and stuff because I like making Uh, things but I hadn't I think my creative self was sort of dormant at the time I think when you're a child you spend a lot of time making things and then you don't necessarily realize that you have to actively keep that up if that's part of you when you're an adult you have to create the reasons to do those things and I remember going to one of those pottery painting cafes for my husband's yes. birthday, because he loves that. And one of our friends, Alex, who's a very creative person, but in a very different career path, there was something unleashed in him by painting this teacup, because it had been such a long time since he had occasion to paint anything. Um, so I was very lucky to know Josie, who just did stuff. She she will just yes. have ideas and do things with them, which was very inspiring to me, because I don't like doing anything, <laughs> unless I have to, <laughs> unless there's a deadline or something. Um so, yeah, I started doing things like that with her and we would do all these decorations each month because the club was themed and um, try and think of silly little funny things to do. Um, and there was also a time where she was doing a run at the Soho Theatre, I think that was early in the podcast, for one of her Edinburgh shows. And it was a 12-night run and each night I would sit on stage embroidering a scene from her show. <laughs> so 
That's a, that's the kind of shit that <laughs> we used to do. That back we then. used to do before YouTube. I mean, because because right. like, well, the YouTube was founded existed. in two thousand and five. So mm. I know that. That's one of the few things I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I got it wrong in a quiz once, and uh, ever since it's burned on my brain. And I, I remember very few dates, but I can certainly tell you, YouTube was formed in two thousand five. <laughs> but you were um, uh, you but obviously the internet existed, but it is it is it will be unexplainable to children of the future the extent to which the YouTube, the, the the internet only just existed. Like you were podcasting and obviously you have been through even longer than I have of having to explain the, the time when you had to explain to people what a podcast was. Uh, yeah. you, did you have to explain to people what the internet was? Well, it was borderline. I think Britain also was a few years behind the States in podcasting and also internet because I had friends who were very online in the 90s, which I certainly wasn't. I wasn't really very online until like 2003, uh, or even yeah. later. Um, and also just when I started podcasting, the iPhone wasn't out yet. So certain internet-y things like making a video of yourself and uploading it was just a lot more of a hassle then. And, and getting podcasts mm. was a real pain because you had to connect an old-fashioned iPod to a computer. So I didn't listen to things. So I didn't have an iPod. So technologically, things have come a long way. And having to convince someone that they might like to find entertainment on the internet isn't such a battle anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Because at one point you would have to say no. I mean, even recently, a few years ago, pre-serial, and I mean, I think I don't know which podcast festival it was, but I remember seeing someone's branding was. I think the branding of the festival was I was listening to podcasts before serial, but that was like <laughs> such a kind of a seismic kind of moment um, where we've both had to say to people, "It's downloadable internet radio or whatever, whatever yeah. is your sort of your thing." It's great, crazy. We'll we'll get on to the the podcasty bit, but you were working um so what before let's just put a, mm. uh, a little pause in this for a second who were you at and before university before you met Josie what did you study at uni I guess it was classics or English or something. <laughs> it, was, it, it was sort of a combination of both because it was old and middle English so English ah. up to 1400 and it was a brilliant pragmatic choice because there's less of it like once you start getting into Shakespeare you really fucked yourself because <laughs> A, lots to read. B, lots written about it that you have to read. C, there's nothing original you can say. Nothing, nothing. So yeah. you're not going to get a very good mark. Whereas before 1400, the stuff really cuts to the chase, which I found interesting. And there's, yeah, there's not as much written material. So it gives you time to pursue your extracurriculars. So I felt yes. like I really, a lot of the stuff that I did when I should have been studying or why I wasn't studying Shakespeare because I didn't have to, those were more useful in life than the actual academics. Mm -hmm. But also I wasn't mm -hmm. expecting the old and middle English to be useful because at the time I went to university, you could go for free and study something because you were interested in it and to form yourself as a person and not expect to have to find some use out of it. And then 12 years later, it did become useful. But that was yes. impossible Luck. to plan. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that like, that's one of those things where I suppose we realise how old we are. I realise how old I am. When old, I old kind Stuart of, Goldsmith. I kind of hear myself as well as uh, someone like yourself saying things like, well, of course, in those days. But like, or, or like in the way that, for example, I will hear comedians often say, well, of course, in the 80s, you could just be on the dole and be a comedian. Yeah. Like you could just, that was a legit thing. You were eligible for, for payment from the government if you were like, I'm, I'm being a comedian. They'd be like, sure, there's your money. And in a similar way, now we can look back at university and go, oh, you used to just go to university to grow as a person rather than yeah. to train vocationally or just to smash pints. 
<laughs> so it's uh yeah it's it an incredible off. privilege and everyone should have it then it wouldn't be a privilege it would just be something <laughs> everyone could have um but i appreciate how lucky i was I'm going to put a pin in a question for later on. As the mm-hmm. creator and host of the Illusionist pod, the Illusionist podcast, do you have to really stay on yourself and pick yourself up on little linguistic things like that in case people get in touch with you and mm-hmm. say things like, it can't be a privilege if everyone has it because your fan base are the sort of people that pick up on that kind <laughs> yeah, of shit. Yeah, they are terrible and regularly hoist lovely, you with your lovely, own lovely, petard. terrible <laughs> um, there, there are certain words that I look up in the dictionary just to protect myself because they respect the dictionary. So I remember... I did this episode and before throwing to an ad, I say we'll be back momentarily or something. And I thought Uh, I'll just check that momentarily means coming up in a moment, essentially. And I got like dozens of people getting in touch, complaining about it and had to go, look, it's in the fucking dictionary. (laughs) And that's (laughs) the one thing you took away from this episode. Yes. Yes. Something we'll, we'll get onto this shortly, but just while we're on it, um, I believe the word irregardless. Do you know about the word irregardless? Oh, yes. So yes. it's a it's a completely torturous fuck together, uh, <laughs> a torturous fuckstorm of regardless and irrespective. But I believe it is now so commonly misused that it is in the dictionary There's, in the same way yeah. as literally now just means emphatically. There's in been a way a, that yeah, it's a very valuable learning urine. experience. Literally used to really needle me, but I've just had to then to tolerate it because it's a linguistic process that happens all the time. There's a brilliant book called um, Word by Word by Corey Stamper, who worked at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary for 20 years. And there's a whole chapter about irregardless there, because Mm -hmm. obviously it's a nonsense word. But if a word is used um, in a sustained fashion, then it becomes it becomes a word. I mean, they're all from nothing. They're all just from grunts. (laughs) I mean, that's a great point. They're all from grunts. And uh, the sooner that you can kind of... uh, relinquish the urge to be angry about it all the time the happier you'll be this is something that i have found since doing a podcast about linguistics and stuff <laughs> we'll we'll come on to that soon but um let's go back to pre-university then what Pre. kind of kid were you i was just really waiting to be an adult i just really wanted to be an adult and not in that I was trying on high heels or something or like smoking when I was eight. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just wanted to not be noticed and then be able to be an adult because I think it represented okay. freedom to me. And also because I was the youngest in the household because I was an accident baby. And okay. therefore, because of the age gap, I felt kind of vulnerable because everyone else knows stuff and you don't. And not knowing stuff is a weakness and can be yeah. used against you. Um, yeah. So I think I wanted to be independent very early on before it's really practical to be so I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't accept help though and yeah I so I don't feel nostalgic about childhood I don't think back at it at all and I had a perfectly pleasant childhood my family a lovely um I had a very safe childhood so I don't think there's particular trauma there but I just wanted to get through it and but is it? I mean, this is this is this is classic comcom stuff now because I'm just going to pick you up on two things. One, you knew you were an accident baby. Yeah. that's a thing. That's not that's yeah. not nothing. Yeah, uh, my parents had moved on to other things. They had my two brothers who were seven and a half and five and a half years older than me, and then my mother's IUD malfunctioned, and okay. here I am, forty years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, and did like when did you know that? I don't know. I feel like I've known since I was really young 
But probably before I knew the whole baby process, I knew that I was a mistake baby, but it's sort of a relief in a way. <laughs> takes, <laughs> takes the pressure dig a bit, off. Dig a bit further into that. How is it a relief? Well, oh, I see what you mean, because yeah. they could never say, hey, listen, we expect more of you than this, because you could say you didn't expect anything of me. <laughs> yeah, or, or like when families are massive because they've had children all of one sex and they want one of another sex and and you're like are the middle ones just feeling like filler and then the one that is of the sex they tried so hard to get like what's the pressure on them to behave in a sort of gender stereotypical way um uh so i didn't have that but also um actually there was pressure because my older my older brothers are both very high achieving and therefore i had to I had to do that. My dad was kind of academically ambitious for us, and I think that's partly an immigrant thing. I think that's common across a lot of immigrants. But I think it was also something... he He's not only an immigrant himself, he's the child of an immigrant. So he felt that pressure too, and his response to it was to rebel against it. So he got thrown out of medical school, for instance. Didn't want to be a doctor, but his parents sent him because that's okay. what Jews are supposed to do. So he just didn't uh-huh. go to any lectures and stuff, and he got thrown out. And then he did three degrees in maths and stats just so he could piss around at university for eight years and then he (laughs) moved to britain so very far away from them which is also controversial married a non-jew and then became a sculptor so he just rebelled very hard against every expectation they had for him and so when it came to us i remember reading an interview with my brother andy where the interview was like, what do your parents think about you t- taking uh, up the profession of comedian? And he was like, when your dad's a sculptor, there's nothing they can do. Because <laughs> every profession every profession seems like a better choice. Um, yes. But it was interesting growing up in that environment because it was so useful not to have a particular set of professional expectations mm. where only certain jobs would be allowed it really frees you up to not fear having the kind of feckless piece of shit career path that that I had for a really long time um but also just growing up with someone who was very frustrated by the artistic path he chose I think my dad's a really good sculptor but he wasn't a marketer sculpting is also a profession where you know being a successful sculptor is near impossible and it's like yeah, failure is built in, and I think he always felt very bitter. Any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's such a but. But he, but he kind of stood by that choice. That's kind of. Yeah. Do you think that there's a nobility to that? Like this isn't working in a kind of, or not that it's not working necessarily, but it isn't going to be explosive. But yeah. you're doing the thing for the love of it. Was that like yeah. a positive influence on your childhood? Not really, because I'm not like that at all. I would not have continued podcasting if no one was listening and if the podcast hadn't grown. I I don't have that self-motivation in me. My husband will record albums of music because he needs to, not because someone is making him and I'm not like that. I I kind of wish I was. The thing with my dad's choice, like I admire that day after day he could go to a studio and make a sculpture and it might take years to finish the piece because also I like things that are quite quick to make. But... um, (sighs) I think the problem was the parameters he had for success were very external and they're and not really ones he could control. So I think he would have loved to have been like highly fated, um, have a lot of pieces bought, but be kind of sceney. 
But if your parameters of success are making these beautiful pieces, um, you know, following your vision, being really single-minded, then he did succeed. But by his own parameters, he didn't. And that's kind of tragic to me to think about. My mom gave up everything so that he could make it work. And when I was born, he became a sculptor when my oldest brother was a baby. And then my middle brother was in the womb. And by the time I was born, six-ish years later, he was fairly deep in it. And I think he had set various deadlines for success. But by the time they came around, he was like, well, I'm unemployable now. (laughs) So all of the times where he was, he should have been like, okay, now I'm going to just try and get a job. He was like, well, there's no point. No one's going to give me a job. And I was just really anxious not to reach that point with my own career because I was very worried about it. And for over a decade, I was, I did not feel successful and I was also not earning enough to live. And I was just like, at what point do I call it so that I don't feel like my dad um, and I don't inflict these things upon my partner? I don't have children, so there wasn't that fear of, you know, fucking up my family. Um, mm. But I just didn't want to be bitter about what I, I, I suppose that the world didn't recognise my brilliance or that I felt like I'd failed. Mm. That was a long answer to whatever your question was. Uh, yes, I was a child once. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm interested, in, I'm interested in, in whether you, like your, your appraisal of that now, that your dad didn't have the, um, he didn't set his own parameters for success. Like, when did you set your parameters for success? Because I would imagine that you are successful now both by your own parameters and external societal parameters. That's Is nice. That fair? I mean, I feel very fortunate. I, I suppose for me, that feeling was when I wasn't thinking about what more I wanted. Like, there are other people in my field who are way more successful than me and probably other things I could have done if I was more strategic or more business-focused or better at marketing, so I'm also not good at that. But feeling happy with the place that I got was not something I ever expected to the extent that I've had it the last few years. And it's an incredible feeling. Also, not worrying about rent anymore is an incredible Mm. feeling. Mm. It's very freeing. Um, But I think the difference that... So while my eldest brother took a, a more normal career path, and I think that's partly just a reaction to having a father who's a sculptor, and maybe being a bit more aware of the shifting economics because things were fairly consistent by the time I came along. But I think for him, he would have maybe noticed that things changed faster. They moved a lot before I was born. They moved basically every year, and I think that affected him. Um, But the thing that Andy and I knew about taking a creative path was that we didn't have a fallback option like my dad did. My dad got bailed out by his parents because he was their Mm. only child. And I think they just didn't want him or his grandchildren to be completely screwed. So even though they didn't really approve of his career, they still made it possible for him to carry on with it. Andy and I didn't have that financial cushion, so we had to figure out how to make it work. And it was really useful to have Andy as an example a few years ahead of me of a different way to have a creative career. Yes, Yes, a different way, like a whole different thing again from what you were interested in. Did you have any leanings? Did you ever consider going into comedy as comedy? Not as stand-up. And I watched a lot of it and thought about it, but it was never something I thought I'd be particularly good at. I mean, I like performing, um, but I 
it's it's really only very recently in the last couple of years that I've been able to do kind of performance monologues rather than be reactive. Um, and I like not being in front of people. I, <laughs> I like that with podcasts, I don't have to leave a room and nor do they. Um, but also it's an easier proposition. I feel like I, I've seen a lot of rough stand-up gigs and I think it's a brave and confident thing to do to get up on stage and being like, I think I can make a good use of your time and I am capable of amusing you. And I don't think I ever felt that confidence. Whereas with podcasts, it's like, here's a thing you can opt in if you want. Um, yes. But people have paid nothing. They haven't gone to a place with expectations. So it's a bit easier not to disappoint them. I, I've got a very clear memory of you and me both appearing on a radio show. I think we were, it was like a topical news thing. It might have been five oh. things on some Scottish oh, like, BBC Scotland. Oh, on On Fred McCauley. Was it Fred? Because I now have a sort of friendship with Fred. And I, I think at the time I was too wrapped up. I was a newer comic and I was too wrapped up in the fact that I don't write topical jokes. I'm not a big news guy generally. I try and, you know what I mean? I like, I... I, I'm not a big news guy. I read the newspaper, but I, um, that's the first time I've said the word newspaper in many years. That's interesting. Like, paper, I, I, follow I remember the that news. substance. Yeah, I've, I follow the news, but I don't write jokes about it ever. Yes, And good I for remember you. being really, <laughs> I remember being like, I'm really nervous and keyed up. I couldn't even remember it was Fred, actually. That's so funny. Um, but, and then you were the other guest on the show, and I don't think we were in the same, were we in the same room? I can't remember. It would have been I like one of those little if, studios with no... Yes, in Portland. It. Yeah, yeah, what's it? Portland Place. Um, and uh, and you were effortlessly funny about everything and oh. you had no notes and you were just riffing on questions and being really funny. And I was desperately trying to remember and find on a piece of paper the bad, ineffective jokes that I've written <laughs> about the topics I've been given. And I, re I really learned from it. I really went, oh, none of this matters. What matters is listening and having a point of view. Like you were very riffy funny. I remember hmm. being really surprised going, oh, God, like I hadn't I was at no point was I confident, let alone overconfident with that kind of brief. But I do remember thinking, well, I'm glad I'm here with Helen and not someone who's like a pro comic. And then you wiped the floor with me. And I thought, <laughs> oh, well, that's me. <laughs> it was a contest after all, Stu. <laughs> um, oh, that's that's uh, strange. Um, I think I'm a good value guest on shows like that. I mean, maybe not on your show because I'm not feeling particularly amusing at the moment. <laughs> but, no, mate, um, you're, you're giving us absolute pure com com. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a real uh, a real parade of mirth. Um, I don't know where that comes from. Well, actually, I guess it was just... So, be, again, being the youngest in a household of really funny people. My dad is hmm. a very funny man. Um, both my brothers are really funny. We even had quite a funny dog. And... <laughs> It was just what, no was, what was funny about your dog. I've um, got to pick you up on that. She, she was, she was really sly and she was really greedy. I remember once she stole, she stole a box of chocolates, maybe Ferrero Rocher, and just ate them whole and then shat all the foil out. <laughs> um, As a gag. She, well, there's I'm a certain a great kind foil of bit now. shitty slapstick to it. I remember she stole a kilo of raisins and then. I discovered this because I was sitting at the dining table and my foot found this cold pile of raisin puke. Oh, God. She managed to steal a jar of Bovril and get the lid off. That backfired on her because it it's too salty for a canine palate. Um, she would try and carry sticks that were wider than the doorway through a doorway, so that was fun. <laughs> you know, things Absolutely like that. classic dog slapstick there, the bit yep. with the ladder where you turn around. Oh. Great. <laughs> oh, delightful. 
Um, but it was it was that feeling of again being at a disadvantage because I was young, and my brothers would have all these funny stories about stuff that happened in the day, and I was like, you can't just say you toddler shit. <laughs> if you speak, you really have to bring it. Um, and then there was also just that element of survival I guess because kids can be cruel without even realizing it and I was definitely like that too um and I was at somewhat of a disadvantage because I was the youngest in my school year by quite some way uh I've always been a fat person so it's useful having just like ways where people don't bully you like I have been very I mean it's not nice to say I've been lucky not to be bullied because no one should be but I haven't and I think it is partly for being verbally quick um, but also just when you're in a kind of guest situation on a comedy show, it's less work because you, <laughs> you haven't, you haven't prepared. And I'm still like that. I, I, I don't really think of jokes. Um, and I don't like writing. I really hate it. And I don't know where stuff comes from. I feel like my mind is empty all of the time, pretty much, except for when I'm trying to go to sleep and then it's full of like fear and noisy thoughts that are bad. <laughs> Sure. But that's interesting. That's something I hear a lot of compares say in comedy clubs, MCs or hosts or whatever you want to call them, um, of like what, and I try and do it myself, of walking up to the stage with nothing in your head. Wow. So that you can immediately be reactive and play with it. I do that all the time now. It's one of my, one of my most fun things if I'm comparing is, is to like almost, to completely disassociate from the environment be chatting in the green room as much as possible and getting completely lost in that and then just walk on and go whoa here we are and just kind of dive in like that so actually to feel like you're like that most of the time is probably quite a good flow state for your creativity right because you're not walking around like a lot of desperate comedians myself included at certain times kind of with that clench of going like what am I gonna say what am I gonna do I have to offer something something's required of me you know that's a really uncreative place to be for most people and actually if you're if you've attained a much more (laughs) you know what I mean like a sort of an an empty vessel state with your mind such that you can (laughs) riff I mean I mean that in a very positive way yeah uh I well I think it's very circumstance-based I think I would really shit the bed if I did that if I was comparing a live show I I think it's great when I'm being reactive and someone else is in control of the medium but just going on stage with no prep would be alarming. I could think I could do it for a little bit, or if like something stupid happened in the room, like a chair collapse, nah, then like you, there's always you, stuff you can do. You do it. I I I'd give you I'd give you half an hour. I'd explain three bullet points, <laughs> and you'd be able to host a room for the rest of your life because you've got you've got the thing. And actually, the trick of it, I think, is in um, provoking the audience to do a thing such yeah. that you then have something to react with. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's all the same skill sets. You just need to be able to... Oh, you know, there's a million different ways to do it, but I, I feel like I could see you doing it. Anyway, um, that's so at the, at the end of this podcast, it's a new format I'm trying. You then immediately walk from your house to uh, host a gig that I've set up. Okay, cool. Which... <laughs> nice little finale move. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's like a reality okay. show, isn't it? Yeah. If we pull back that uh, that uh, piece of art behind you, you will see that a uh, hundred socially distant people are standing at two metre squares <laughs> ready for the gig. But now I understand why so many people have a fear of public speaking. <laughs> so this is Helen. We're having a gay old time chatting to each other. What a lovely, warm presence she is. Very, very funny, very professional. She knows what she does inside out. She's really... 
placed herself, not placed herself, that sounds like a, a more of a plan than perhaps it was, but she has ended up at the centre of the world of podcasting. And it's just lovely to speak to someone who is so passionate about what she does and so naturally funny and so naturally articulate and lucid and all those sort of things. So I'm loving talking to Helen. If you would like to hear more of this episode, there are 25 minutes of extras in which we will talk to Helen um, about the origins of Answer Me This. We don't, we barely mention it here but we get stuck into a sort of dive into how they cultivated the community of that show now 14 years deep um and uh how that community passes the show on to their own children that's incredible and also some very very funny stories about early marketing tactics and techniques that are the sorts of things that these days if you did them you'd probably already have arranged your ted talk about them before even doing them. So all of that available to members of the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And hey, I should have read these out at the beginning, but I didn't. Um, these are the current newbie subscribers. Welcome to the team. Alice Bean. Bean. Uh, Paco Garcia. I had I tripped over that because uh, I, that was autocorrected. I see now to Pace. Pace Garcia. That's the cool Beverly Hills 90210 version of Paco Garcia. Um, Katie Dyer, Christy Trinidad, Jason Roche, Philip Smith and Pat Cecil. And the winner is Philip Smith, who went in at £10 a month. God love you, Philip Smith. Thank you so much. Uh, remember, you yourself can join the Insiders Club and get hold of all of the extra content by going to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, paying a minimum of £2 a month, but you can upgrade that to whatever you like, but everyone gets the same stuff. So it's like a clever clogs um, Patreon system, which is tiered, except everyone gets the same stuff, and it's all just done on trust, love and benevolence. There's all of that. The Infinite Sofa, as you well know, and I'm going to make a trailer after I finish recording this, uh, an audio trailer featuring some of the best bits of the uh, interviews with uh, Russell Howard, probably the James Acaster one, who knows, maybe a bit of a Banderman, maybe a bit of Sarah Millican. I'm going to make a short audio trailer to play on the podcast feed. So that should be the next thing you hear on the feed. If you're listening any later than 24 hours after this episode goes out, then bob back on and see if me and Nathan have managed to wham that up just yet. Go to infinitesofa.com, as that trailer will surely tell you, 9pm on Mondays and Thursdays, but you can go to the website anytime, find out who's coming up on the show, and sign up for the mailing list for access to our very swanky virtual green room, which is so much fun after the show for about half an hour or so. Everyone involved in the show or on the mailing list is invited to come and spend some time in a virtual green room that is a little bit like a Zoom room, except you have a little avatar that can walk around so you can peel off and have little breakout conversations. Also, in my life and online, Tuesdays at 8pm, chopscomedy.com. Chopscomedy.com, the online home of uh, me, Tony C and David Hawes, Bristol-based new material venture, which opened a few months ago, sold out every show, and then was sadly cancelled and uh, disintegrated in the wake of the Panny D. It's back, it's online. We've had uh, Gary Delaney, we've had Stephen Grant, we've had some fantastic stuff. Uh, Kate Lucas was brilliant on it, Nigel Ung last night. Just fabulous. Everyone on there has had a great set and a really fun time, and you can just tell, you can see that sort of enjoyment bubbling over into the room. It uses the same format that I am pioneering uh, for the Infinite Sofa, so there are members of the public in the room, a sort of visible um, uh, studio audience, if you like, and uh, coming up next week, Tuesday at 8pm, Paul F. Taylor, Jared Christmas, Dan Atfield and Josie Long. So get along to chopscomedy.com. The very last thing I'm plugging for now, and it's plug, 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 I know, but there's a lot going on and I'd like you all to know about it, uh, is the working lunches. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash lunch if you fancy having a little mentoring session with me. Those have been absolutely wonderful so far and I'm looking forward to doing more. 
Let's get back to Helen Zaltzman. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're the godmother of podcasting, right? Uh, yeah. That, or was it, what do you? What do people say uh, after a comma after your name? Well, they'll because just you're, you're... say queen of podcasting, but it's a republic, so <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't like monarchies. Pointless <laughs> queen of. Yeah, I mean the the thing that I I like and I'm proud of is that hopefully I gave a lot of information to a lot of people that helped them start or for their shows to get bigger. But I'm happy. You did. You you Wait. you selflessly. You put yourself out there. You created networks. You very deliberately said, "I'm going to give my time to anyone that wants to do this." You could yeah. you could easily have gone. I've had a couple of breaks here. I'll keep that to myself. I'll hoard it and make sure that I don't <laughs> sh- spill the beans. I'll share the secrets of how to get. Oh yeah, on the so many secrets to you. Have, you know. Go to Luxembourg. <laughs> well, um, simply, I mean, look, look. I know what you mean, yeah. but we're also, also, it is a valid point, right? You Like the secret of going to Luxembourg, this is my allusion to a TED talk, was <laughs> that what you should do is something that's never been done before, that's yeah. crafty, that makes people smile, that creates a story. That don't worry about whether the stunt works because the story of the stunt is more important because that's the thing that has legs. You know, all of that, that's a guide to how to get big in whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know what Find I mean? your Luxembourg. <laughs> there we go. That's it. Abortive, Shit. unmarketable TED Talk version too. <sighs> Fooled myself. Uh, <laughs> the thing I've always felt with podcasting is there's no secret except for just the graph, just being prepared for it being hard and not fun. And so I always try to tell people that so they don't feel like they've failed when it's not fun and it is hard. Um, but I didn't feel like it was going to make my situation worse by helping other people get started or whatever. Like, why would it? Do you not think, I mean, I'm just going to press you on that only because I have craven feelings of wanting to pull up the tiny ladder that I have climbed. I try to overcome them and I really make a real effort um, to honour my uh, podcast mentor and uh, fairy godmother. But uh, you know what I mean? Like, I like, I like what you, I like the flavour of the world of podcasting that you introduced me to. That is like, it's about helping each other. It's about letting everyone know how they can do it. Thank God for the Facebook group, uh, podcaster support group, because now I can answer comedians well i know but from my perspective comedians regularly get in touch not not a couple of times a week but for a while it was a couple mm. of times a week now saying, they've all hey, got podcasts me? exactly yeah i've used them well um so uh people would get in touch saying hey what should i do what mic should i get what should i do and i could literally fire back join podcasters support group spend an entire day reading everything every read yeah. a day's worth of stuff it's going to be a dull day yeah it's going to be a horrible day but then you'll you'll know exactly and then come back to me i would say and 
ask me specific questions and no one ever returned. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it puts them off um, because, I mean, this is the thing, like, I, my time was a lot more available before the pod boom and it was partly because, yeah. like, I make a lot more podcasts now and um, so I need more of my time and energy to do the job. But also just, I mean, I also have to recognise that going to Luxembourg might not work for everyone now. Like, the advice I have is not necessarily mm. relevant to today's circumstances um but also i think i think the tone of stuff has changed i think until serial and and the pod boom that followed serial you could kind of befriend most podcasters in the world if you were like i'm gonna be in town and i'm a podcaster and you're a podcaster and people would be like great i've made a lot of pod friends in that way just because we had podcasts before late 2014 um Mm. and i think now there's a lot of people where they're quite pyramid schemey about it so it mm-hmm. is not necessarily as sincere an exercise, and and that, that is so di- that's so diplomatically put. Yeah. It's not necessarily so sincere an exercise. My God, there's a lot of not necessarily's around. Yeah, but also just like before, there was much reason to do it, except for loving to do it. You could meet up with other podcasters and like help them out because you were just like, why not? Like it felt like a very genuine thing to do. But now people are like, I want to meet you and pick your brain so I can get rich. And I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't really want to participate in that. <laughs> well, what I love is when someone genuinely stimulates engagement because they write something with personality and it can be at, at heart quite a basic question, but they put it in a way that's very human. But it's the ones yes. where you feel like they've been created in this like entrepreneur bot laboratory just yeah. to fuck with people. <laughs> and that I don't love. Or it just it's probably not like the best way for them to be either. They probably think, well, I should put on this cloak and it will work, but it won't necessarily work. Like I think I think podcast listeners are very, very attuned to insincerity or pretension um, because you're their friend that lives in their brain and they don't necessarily want to be hectored by someone who does like inspirational fridge magnets, and, but, <laughs> but through their voice. Um, you mentioned uh, when we started talking that you had recently done the most pretentious thing mm. you've ever done. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, The Illusionist was on a break when the pandemic really hit. And it was good that I didn't have to use my brain to have complex thoughts for a while because I, like a lot of people, was just spinning out. But yeah, I know that a lot of people listen to my podcasts to calm themselves down and get to sleep and things like that because I think you can often have these disruptive thoughts and if you listen Mm -hmm. to music you can still have them but if you listen to speech it's harder to have your internal monologue and I thought oh of course of course I mean this is my armchair analysis of it I'm not a scientist I'm Um, I'm armchair buying it great yeah it's for sale to armchair dwellers (laughs) uh but uh, through the years, we've heard a lot from people. Like, it amazed us with Answer Me This a few years in when we would hear from people saying, I listen to you cause, uh, during acute depression or anxiety and things like that. And we were like, this is a reason to carry on even when we don't feel like it. Um, mm. And I never could have foreseen that. And it's one of the most important things to me about podcasting. Um, but with The Illusionist, I was like, I know that the audience wants stuff. I don't really want to have to make proper shows at the moment because I'm on my break <laughs> and I don't want to have to think. So I did these things that were sort of like ASMR stuff where it was me soothingly reciting words to serene music that uh, my husband Martin composed and um, and they're meaningless because the words are detached from meaning 
And when was the, one of them about? Sorry, sorry. Go on, yeah. go on. I, I think I've seen one of these and not understood what it was. Go on. <laughs> They're called Tranquillusionists. There's a few of them. Yes, good. Yes, of yeah. course. Yes. And um, so the first one, I just got listeners to submit the words they find most soothing, and I just read them out. But then the Celebrity Imagine video came out, and I was going to sleep one night, and I was like, it'd be really funny to do a Tranquillusionist of the song Imagine, but with the words rearranged in reverse alphabetical order. <laughs> That's the one I saw, and yeah. I could not tell what the fuck was going on, but it was quite yeah. soothing. <laughs> like, I wasn't yeah. upset, I wasn't at all panicked that I was unable to work out what was happening. Right. Yeah, exactly, you just, you just <laughs> swim along with it. And then my husband, um, he took the chords of Imagine and just alphabetize them and he was like it's great because you've got like 56 <laughs> bars of f <laughs> uh, just like a minute of f and um and i just tried to recite it straight in this in the the most kind of recorded poetry voice that i could muster okay um and uh, <laughs> i think it's really funny but it's also quite beautiful because you just have this parade of words um over lots of f's you're, um, and it means where, nothing. Where can we find? But I tried to is make that, it sound like it meant something. Is that on the Illusionist? Uh, is, do you have a YouTube yeah. channel? Uh, I, yeah, I made a YouTube just so I could have a video with the words popping up. It's on the podcast feed as well. It's called okay. Midgia, which is the letters yeah, gotcha. of imagine in alphabetical order. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So tell us about the Illusionist. Then I remember you. I remember you asking what you should call it. I love little mm. things like that. Early, early moments of like, what mm. is that? What is this? Um, you have been you, studying Stuart. I rem- no, I rem- no, we had a conversation about it <laughs> some yeah. time ago. But I remember you pitching it. I remember it being on Radiotopia. I know that yeah. there's some link between Radiotopia and Roman Mars. Is it his yes. network? What's yeah, the it, yeah. When he ran a couple of very, very successful Kickstarters back when that was still unusual in 2012 and 2013. And the 2013 one raised so much by his standards then of being one person with one member of staff. He was like, well, I don't need all this money to run my show. I'll make it possible for other producers I know to run their shows. And he was a big fan of Answer Me This. I'm not sure how he found it. Um but he wanted to answer me this to be part of it, except Radiotopia, like the first wave particularly, is these very serious, beautiful sounding shows that are kind of about the human condition, essentially. And mm-hmm. answer me, this is none of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew he was interested in working with me. So I just had this thought one day. It was just basically the phrase word detective came into my mind. And I was like, that sounds like it could be a thing. And so I pitched it to him. And he was like, OK, yeah, but not word detective (laughs) i think he thought it was just really too obvious yeah i think if you're claiming to be a word detective you need to prove that you can say something wittier than word detective (laughs) yeah like otherwise that's one of those jokes where the joke is the joke itself (laughs) yeah although there's um something that makes me laugh every time i go by it in my old neighborhood in crystal palace in london which is a private investigator um it's finney's bureau of investigation it's fbi (laughs) and i love i just love whatever decision making went into that where they were like well just because there's another fbi doesn't mean i don't have the right to it and then they've got like some funny url where it's like (laughs) fbi.uk.ltd.com um but anyway he was yeah he was right because also um well, someone else has used word detective now anyway. It's funny, mm. there were like all these names we came up with for Answer Me This before we came up with Answer Me This that 
we rejected then for being too shit and too cheesy. A lot of them were pod puns. And now all of them fucking exist. Like the yeah. BBC is like popping out these early, early rejected onto me this names. And I was like, seriously, try harder. What was some of the, the other puns. what was some of the other front runners before you settled on the illusionist? Um, Which is perfect, incidentally. Thank you thank you, Stuart. It means a lot to me that you say that because it was it was a tricky choice. It was it was weeks of like back and forth arguing with the people behind the scenes at Radiotopia and Roman. They all wanted something that was like very kind of um artistic sounding. And I wanted something I had like I found it very hard to take myself seriously at the time. Not like now. And um I wanted something that I could say without laughing at myself. Yes. So when they were coming up with stuff like idiomatique, I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> or they would come up with things that were very dry. Um, or loads of people wanted it to be called more than words, like the extreme song. And I was like, mm. you know, the extreme song is a bit gross when you think about it lyrically. And also there are already shows called that, which is yeah. another thing that podcasters need to do. You need to research that are not other podcasts yes, of the same yes, name. Yes. And um, <laughs> we were really desperate because they needed to launch the thing. And I remember I was in... I was in a like an audio workshop run by two of the other Radiotopians and I was just sitting in the back and I wasn't really paying attention because I was desperately trying to think of a fucking name for the show and Roman was also there <laughs> and I was texting him because couldn't talk and and I was texting him these names and he was like, no, and I was like just flicking through the Thesaurus app, which is a very useful app. Love it. And um, I don't know what I put in it, maybe something like Subtext, which was another high potential mm-hmm. name that I, I'm glad it isn't mm-hmm. called. And Allusion came up and I was like, the Allusionist. And I texted it to Roman and he was like, yes. And then he was like, no, the vowel's going to be a problem when you say it aloud. So then we had like a few more weeks of just these like fucking names. And I was like, it's got to be the Allusionist. And the funny thing is just explaining the vowel. Yeah. And <laughs> that's what it is. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. It is when, it you find, when you find something like that. I have a new podcast coming out with Sindhu V and it's a parenting podcast and it's called mm. Child Labour. And I, uh, I, I know, I know, right? But everyone I say it to laughs out loud. So, but it was one of those ideas where we were in a pub in uh, in uh, near Angel, and I said to Sindhu, I mean, we could call it like not this, but something like child labour. And she went, no, that's really good. And I said, yeah, but we can't call it that. And she, it'll offend people. It, it conjures the idea of actual child labour. And she's like, Stuart, if it, my temptation is always to do an impression of Sindhu, but I won't. Um, <laughs> um, but she said, Stuart, uh, if those kind of people that think that's a problem, I don't want them listening to my fucking podcast. And I'm wow. like, yes, that's the way to do it. But we really ummed and for a long time because, like, is it the right thing? But everyone you say it to, you just, it's a quirk of the thing and you go, yeah. You know, it's one of those ideas, you have the idea, it exists in the world and you can't let go of it. Um, is the problem with that, that if you type it into Google, it's going to come up with thousands of pages of things about how children are mistreated in uh, The show countries? will be called... Child Labour with Stuart Goldsmith and Cindy V. <laughs> so if you type all of that into Google. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair, fair, fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, We've best done our of best. Luck. Thanks. I often feel <laughs> like I'm luck. doing things just to minimise people's opportunities to whine about them to me. Yes. Well, I'm going to hide behind Cindy because she's a oh, sort of alpha, alpha lady who I can uh, just go, oh, that's a Cindy decision, but goodbye. <laughs> it sounds like she's, she's kind of excited and ready for the whiners. Yeah, I think so. I think so. She's very, um, she's pretty tough. She'll give them a tight slap, in her words. The <laughs> <laughs> running joke on the show, we've pre-recorded nine, we haven't released them yet. They go out in about three or four weeks. They start going out, and um, we've recorded a bunch. And um, the running joke of the show is that I regard her as bad cop, 
and uh, and she insists that she isn't bad cop very forcefully. So <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. And um, tell me, when it comes to uh, the illusionist, your production values are second to none. The That's research nice of you to that say. It doesn't feel it. like that. No, it's true. It's true. The sound quality is oh. brilliant. It just feels like you know you get prestige TV. I feel like the illusionist mm. is a prestige podcast. Oh. Oh, thank you, Stuart. Thank you. No, but do you know know what I mean? I think Um, you, it is, it is, because the the content is brilliant and it's focused and deeply researched and thought about and and the quality of the whole thing is great and the name is great and everything else. And (laughs) I feel like it sort of, it really makes sense that it's your vehicle now, I guess your your primary vehicle for being in the world and being the person, Mm. I forget the name of the award you won, but was it last year you won most key person in podcasting ever or something? Did That'll you win the British, me, yeah. British Podcast Award? I don't remember the name. <laughs> podcast Champion? Podcast Champion, something like that. Um, yeah, whatever that means. Whatever that means. But like that's a show it. jumping podcaster. <laughs> I won Best International Guest at the New Zealand Comedy Festival. Wow. And it was completely ruined for me by someone saying, that suggests you left the place really tidy when you left. <laughs> it's like, oh, best Aww. guest. <laughs> Oh, but that is a nice accolade when someone's like, you're a, you were a good guest in my home. Yeah, that's so you, nice. That's nice. Yeah. And I feel but, like in New Zealand, being a good guest there is particularly important. 100%. I love, I, I goddamn love that place. Um, yeah, missing so, it. So we... Oh, I was there just like a year ago. And today, Facebook memories told me that this time last year, oh. I was at a prawn park in oh. New Zealand. Oh, 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 oh man. Um, yeah, Facebook Poor members are a, are a killer during the panny day. They are uh, they <sighs> are tough. Tell me though, with yes. with regard to the illusionist, it feels like one of those things that has always existed. Do you know what I mean? Like hmm. like I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Do you know what I mean? It feels like uh, just a thing. No, I don't mean that's a bad example because that obviously no, has existed fine. for a very long time. But it feels like it's one of those ideas that you've kind of cracked and gone. There we go. That's that's what that is. Do you know what I mean? It feels timeless. Yeah, maybe that's coming back to what you were saying earlier about how do you know when you're successful? And I guess what I have at the moment is a show where I do want to do other things in my life and and develop different skills and use different muscles. But fundamentally, what the show is and what I can do with it feel limitless at the moment. They're only limited by my ability to do them and, and... have interesting thoughts and and also just like not collapse because it is quite most shows like the illusionist would have at least four people working on them rather than one yeah um so that's a thing but it feels like you know when i started people assumed ridiculous things to me that it's niche and language it's about language language is a tool that everyone uses everyone i was never really taught anything about it and we should. We're using it all the time and it's so complex and there's so many ways in which it can go wrong. And also it's changing all the time. So that's another big deal. We have to keep on on top of the developments and just be really aware of how we're using it and other people are. There's so much in that. It's really, really difficult. And then the English language is an enormous language. There's like 400,000 plus words. It's actually quite difficult to count because do you count different parts of speech, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's roughly the number. It's bigger than most languages. And yet I was taught fuck all about it and how to use it and what it means and the history of it as well. Like English is problematic too. Like the things that a particular dialect of English, like standard English is not actually a standard. It's just a variation that has privilege behind it. And so it it has exerted its power over a lot of other things 
and thus wiped out a lot of variety or wiped out other languages or other cultures. You know, the story of English as well is also the story of like the empire and colonialization and a lot of bleak shit that has really fucked the world. But but at its very basic level, it's just like the the words that come out of our mouths and reach someone else's ears, right? Yeah. Um, or on the page and the resonance those have. So there's kind of infinite things I could do with it. But also it's meant to be an entertainment show. And it's meant to be useful for people so that they've got a couple of facts at their disposal if they need some facts to drop into a difficult chat or something. Um, So, but at the beginning, people were like, oh, it's niche. And also language is boring because language shows are often just either someone quite posh going, did you know, blah, 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 used to Mm -hmm. mean a fruit tree and blah, blah, blah. Or you're using commas incorrectly. And... I also don't want to do that. I mean, I was a real pedant before I started the show and that really tailed off fairly quickly when I realised through <laughs> working on it that it's actually an unsustainable way to be and it is preferable to get rid of all that pointless anger. Um, but So on the surface, it's like a bit of fun, a bit of distraction, educational, but not in too spoon-feedy a way because I find that condescending and I don't like it myself. But what it's supposed to be doing secretly is just rewiring your brain. Yeah. Like it's supposed to change the way that you think about language and communication and what that means about other people as well. Like I think when the show really works, it's just someone going, oh, fuck. Well, now I can never use this word in the same way again. <laughs> Shit, what have you done? <laughs> like I've ruined namaste for a lot of yoga teachers, apparently. Oh, why is that? How did you ruin namaste? Oh, because, I mean, a lot of people in, I suppose, Western Western appropriated yoga westernized yoga will use namaste in ways that it doesn't actually mean what it is is a formal hello gotcha so when you say it like very solemnly at the end of class as if it's a prayer it's not it's a formal hello okay and and uh, it was a uh, an indian american friend who put me onto it rishi hearway who makes the podcast song exploder amongst many others because oh, it great. really pisses him off yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he's like it's actually stopped me going to certain yoga classes um and then <laughs> and then the yoga teacher's like what am i supposed to say at the end of the yoga? <laughs> cheers <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right exactly <laughs> and that's yoga <laughs> yeah. But like the, it's, it's amazing for me to get to educate myself as well. Like the interest for me is finding out things that I didn't know. Like I'm not that interested in telling people what I know I, because my brain feels empty, as aforementioned. Um, <laughs> and one particularly amazing thing is the ways that the listeners will share their thoughts with me. And some of those like really kind of go very deep. So I, there's a lot of trans people that listen to the show and... Um, I did this episode a few years ago about the inadequacy of the vocabulary for your genitals mm-hmm. because the problem is that word is like it's about um it's about reproduction the word genitals mm-hmm. and so a lot of the terms we have for them like slang and technical are sexual or for procreation but what if you're not using those organs for those or you don't want to use words that are gendered because they're triggering for you or whatever so um, a lot of trans people got in touch after that episode going, these are the problems I have, for instance, when I go to the doctor and I have to describe something, but the words that I have to do it are damaging to me to use. And yes, I was like, geez. could you record yourself talking about that? And they did. And it was like super fascinating, really interesting. And I, I was very reluctant 
uh, to put out the episode. I never would have asked for it because trans people are often reduced to their bodies anyway, and particularly sure. to those parts of their bodies. But them saying, here is how I navigate the world and how words work for me. And it felt like so personal, but also just like opening the door to like this massive universe that was right there and you never gave it a thought if you're if you're cis. Um, so things like that, it's like, I'm so lucky, so lucky that people will share this stuff with me and that I have a platform to share it with other people. What do you want next? That's always been a difficult question. I've never been much of a forward planner beyond a couple of weeks. Um, and particularly now where it feels like time is <laughs> it's on pause, but it's not really. Um, I've spent a lot of the last few years feeling like on the brink of a physical and mental shutdown. And in fact, it came pretty close with like the whole hospitalization thing. And so I want to feel like if if I'm not going to be able to make the show or make as much show just through my own limitations as a human being, that I want to do some incredible stuff with it and really, really do things that I find beyond my capabilities while I still have the opportunity and while still people are listening. So I'm always expecting the whole thing to fall apart as well, that like the financing will disappear and the audience won't give a shit anymore. And um, then I'll have to get a job Although I am probably unemployable now, more unemployable than my dad. <laughs> At least he knows how to what cut do you trees do? down and mend I'm an walls. I'm audio and sculptor. <laughs> the audio only thing sculptor. more pointless than a sculptor. I don't know. There's a market for it at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah. What do I want? Um, what do I want? What do I want, Stuart? That's a great question that I'm asking myself a lot. What, but would, I, you, I, what would you do if you were in the, like financially independent, like completely independent? Like you, you know, you you fall over ten billion quid and you go, oh, that's you're you're allowed yeah. to have it. What would you do? Oh, you know what? I would do fuck all. That's the problem. Like, <laughs> if I didn't have great to work, <laughs> I'd be like, well, okay, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow, and then I just wouldn't. <laughs> like I'm motivated by the necessity and by sponsors having like bought a particular ad six months in advance that so they need it done mm. by this date. They need a show to come out with that ad on it on this day. Mm. That's why I get things done. It's so unromantic and it sounds so uncreative. I feel like so many of my creative decisions are motivated by the most boring practical shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember um, my friend Hutch years ago, we were having a conversation about what would you do if you had a million quid? And he gave me a long detailed answer and he said, and what about you? And literally before I could control it, the first words out of my mouth were, well, the problem with that is, and he was like, shut up. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, that's already told us everything we need to know about your personality. Yeah. I would have to give, I would have to give a lot of it away uh, and then make myself, make myself need things. Because I yes. don't really want money except for not having to worry about money. Like yeah. the acquisition of money is not that interesting to me. So then what is? Jesus, you've really exposed the weakness at the heart of my whole system. <laughs> no, not a weakness, like we were... a vulnerability, and that's why you're brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> we were just um we were just touring with the illusionists for the last two years, which was amazing. And I loved that. So it's like, how do you find a way to kind of keep going around the world with this show, getting to have this like fun time? with the people that like the show. So it's a very easy gig turning up to a live oh, podcast yeah. gig because they're all, they're all opted in already and they're just pleased to see you. I Honestly, um, I wish that my podcast worked for a live audience. It does, but it's so guest dependent. It isn't its own thing. I can't tour it just me. 
So I can't, yeah. you know, I can't do exactly what you're describing. And I'm green and seething so with jealousy. It, lo- it looks so much fun. You People that are it. already up for it, they want to see what you've got. And you just go and do the thing live. Ah, oh, that's yeah. miraculous. And no yeah. kids. I love my kids, but no kids. Grah, they're a ball lake when it comes choice, to international travel. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you get like the love for your children and oh, hopefully yeah. they'll, they'll look after you when you're old and all of that. Sure. And I get, sure. <laughs> get to, to go and do some some really fun gigs in Minneapolis, which is a great place to gig oh, if ever the opportunity man. arises. And also some very interesting mini golf. Um, <laughs> but with The Illusionist, it doesn't really work on stage either. But so I wrote basically like an hour of stand up about uh, gender in language. Ah, um, yeah. Ah, um, maybe I could. Maybe I'm trying to solve the wrong problem here. Maybe right. I need to write an hour of stand up about stand up and tour that as the concept. Work great show. for Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded now of the fact that a comedian who I won't name planned uh, two years ago, the year after the Nanette year, uh, to call their Edinburgh show Nanette Two. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the funniest ideas I think I've ever heard. That's um, a really good joke. It's an expensive joke, I respect it. Is it is a very expensive joke. And it's not just expensive, it also costs quite a lot. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> but with you, it's it's tricky because you're taking a live art, making it into podcasts, and then how do you turn that back into a live art? Yeah. What it's a curious be, problem to it's have. It's got to be possible. It's, uh, it's, yeah, a, it's so. a fun challenge. And hey, it's not one that need occupy me for a year or so. Um, right. Because uh, I'm pleased to say the uh, the most recent time that you mentioned uh, the you know current climate, the pandemic, whatever we're calling it, um, I realised that I had forgotten all about it for the last hour whilst having this lovely Aww. conversation. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, my job is like it's it's largely unaffected by this because I'm indoors on my own, recording yeah. down the line with people anyway. I, d- I don't. I don't interact with people face to face very often at all. <laughs> it's embarrassing, really, how little it has changed. Um, but I wonder whether what you could do is almost like a kind of inspirational uh, leadership thing where you're like, how to be funny from the greatest people in the biz. And it's like you and an hour and a half and clips. Yeah, I do. Um, I sort of do a corporate thing, which is broadly along those lines. But mm. I, I'd like to do like a fan fun. I mean, I do get to do my own stand up, but I feel like. Yeah much as I'm loving the stand-up and they're having a great time too, I feel like I'd sell more tickets if I was doing the Comcom show somehow. Yeah. That'd be interesting. It's, some, some no, I think it. you're right. I think because people's expectations, again, they're like, I'm going along because I already love this thing, not I'm going along because this person's a comedian and they will amuse me, damn it, or I want my money back. It's a different thing, exactly. I'm not getting yeah. to, to revel in that thing that you are, which is, hey, they've opted into specifically what this thing is. But enough about yeah. me. Um, and let's... also a lot of people have been to some shit live podcast shows where they were less good than... Yeah, listening sure. at home. So I think they weren't expecting me to have written a show that worked on the stage. They were just going out of goodwill. So it was nice to pleasantly surprise them. So that is effectively a piece of stand-up comedy. So how did you yeah. write it? Oh, God, it was really bad. I mean, I had the idea for it quite a long time before, but I don't get anything done until the deadline is right there. And um, I wrote... So I, I did SF Sketchfest in 2018 and 2019. And... Um, it was partly a challenge because I'd done these other people's live shows, like being a guest on them, like The Bugle. And I'd done this two-hander in 2017 with Roman Mars, 99% Illusional, which is like a combination of our podcast. Oh, nice. It was really funny. Um, there was like an unexpected song at the end, like some, some fun little like fake outs and stuff. But he doesn't do a lot of live stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I was like, I've got to learn to do this by myself. And so I booked this SF stand-up 
uh, and so I booked this SF Sketchfest show and I was like, okay, you've got to learn it. And um, the, f- the sort of performance breakthrough thing, this is the 2018 show, it's not even the hour of stand-up about gender and language because this is the show that led to the hour of stand-up about gender and language. The thing I wrote for that was that it was like a show in four parts. Um, so like four different chapters. It was easy because it was just, you know, only had to be 15 minutes and then it was another thing. Yeah. I wrote this like prose song about typing champions of history and uh, (laughs) it's called wpm it's now out on the free feed but that to me was like a breakthrough piece of writing and i wrote wrote that basically on the morning that we had the sf sketchfest gig amazing and then like we toured that show on and off throughout that year and at some point on the tour i was like i really want to write this thing about gender and language but i don't have time now because i'm on a tour but i do have sf sketchfest like a few weeks after the tour ends mm-hmm. so i was like okay well i'll take some time off over christmas and write it didn't 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 you know i'd also been like very ill <laughs> i'd been hospitalized for three weeks that year got home for christmas off the tour still like recovering from the shit that i'd had and then my mum got hospitalized and i had to go home and look after my dad who has god. advanced parkinson's so it's like oh, okay you can probably forgive yourself for like not writing a thing but like in january you should definitely do it and then like didn't 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 and then it was like it was literally the day before the show and i was like you've got to write a fucking hour about gender and language and i was staying at a friend's house and i was just like sitting in their living room just like bashing this thing out like in this fugue and I managed it and the show was, I mean, there's a lot of facts in it. So like, it's interesting, even if it's like not necessarily that well crafted, Yeah. but it's so shameful that this is the way I work. And I think it's partly so that the pressure of having to get it done means it comes out right or almost right the first time. Yeah. And then I was like, God, well that was painful. And also I kind of hate it. The next show is not to, uh, not for like another three months. So you'll, you know, you'll spend that three months like shaping it. Didn't, didn't, didn't a fucking course. Yeah. <laughs> Got to New Zealand to start touring it there. And and so, like, then we started to shape it because then we were touring New Zealand and Australia and then the US. So it did develop, but, like, fundamentally, it's still, like, 70% what it was. That's incredible. That I, out in that I fucking love day. the idea of that. So given that that worked, has it occurred to you to try to do that next time when you're writing another show? Oh, God. To go, I'm going to do nothing until the day or the day before because that creative crisis actually produced a show which is now 70% visible but but it's bad because my husband does the music in the live shows and he's like i could use more than a couple of hours to compose all this music please Mm -hmm. and yeah you would think that would motivate me i also have to do visuals and sometimes order artwork from people it'd be nice to do that before the show began rather than like halfway through a tour (laughs) um and just just also having some ingenuity and i think i'm pleased with with the gender show was i made a costume for it that was a prop in the show as well it was like this mm-hmm. black sequin dress that um i could write things in and then at, part way through the show i wiped those things off at a dramatic oh, nice. moment and people are like how has she done that um so like i i had enough foresight to have done that <laughs> it'd be yeah. nice to do more kind of stagecrafty things yeah. with it and not just be kind of you know only seven out of ten happy with a piece yes well, what you need is uh, you need a one-off show that you can write on the day and then you've done mm. that show and then you've got a month until your next gig where you could do a clever uh, 
I'm, this is not a problem that yeah. you've come to me with. This is no, unsolicited this is, this, advice. We're just on repeating what has happened the, <laughs> the previous two years. I mean, now technically I've got a year, you know, who knows how long, infinity time until I next perform again. And <laughs> I've, got, I've got some ideas that are tickling my brain, but I was like, it's not their time. I have a very short queue of concern and I can do the next thing in the queue and the queue doesn't stretch that far back. So I was like, oh, you should write a book while The Illusionist is off air during uh, during this break you've got for like three months. Have I written a book? Have I fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Helen, this is all we've got time for. My son is now bouncing up and down on the bed. And to be fair to him, I did promise him that I'm five minutes late, which is a shame yeah. because I could talk to you for a lot longer. Thank you well, so much for, for joining me. me. Your podcast is The Illusionist. And what other things? Uh, well, there's Answer Me This, of course, the yes. granddaddy of all the podcasts. Um, what other things to where should you direct us? Oh, I have another podcast as well called Veronica Mars Investigations, which is recapping the TV show Veronica Mars. And if you don't watch that, we just did an episode recapping the 1995 BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Get recapping. Um, Do you have a central point website that we could point people at? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit neglected, but helenzaltzman.com is one. Okay, well, Twitter. maybe we'll get on your contact page at helensaltzman.com and send you... I may have taken suits, the contact page down soothing so you emails. can't send me your linguistic complaints. <laughs> so that was Helen. Thank you so much to Helen for coming along. That was a joy of a conversation. Thank you to everyone that tuned in at twitch.tv slash Goldsmith to see us record that conversation live. Thanks to uh, Callum Morin for helping me sort that out. He's producing my Twitch stuff. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing this episode. Jake Crossland for logging it. Your podcast consultant is Pete Dobbing and the music was by Rob Smouten. That was Helen. You can find out what Helen's doing. Just just search for Answer Me This or uh, more sort of shiny and new and uh, Helen's solo project, The Illusionist. You can find that on the Radiotopia Network wherever you get your podcasts. The Illusionist is so fun. And have a listen. Have, have a little squiz online at the um, at the YouTube version of uh, The Tranquillusionist that she was talking about just there. That's uh, really fun. And it was it's bonkers and it was fun to find out what it actually is. So uh, do visit or revisit that. Remember to go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for 25 minutes of extra content from Helen and bags and bags of other stuff, as well as access to the Slack workspace, infinitesofa.com for all of your online chat show requirements. And do just bob your head in at nine o'clock on a Monday and Thursday and see what we're doing. I'm so, so proud of it. Seeing uh, Rob Broderick uh, improvise a freestyle rap with multiple sound effects, sound pads and cues and stuff about me and Sarah Millican as we were chatting and the fact that we were all in the uh, the So You Think You're Funny final back in 2005 together. I just, honestly, if you go back and watch it, you can see them all at infinitesofa.com, the previous episodes. I'm just crying laughing with my head in my hands. It was so magical. So go and do that. And finally, uh, I will post Amber at you after the episode concludes now. Oh, so, gosh, talking, talking, lots and lots of internet talking for me. And here's a quick thing that happened to me, and I just wanted to share it with you because it was so weird. I was in a little branch of Tesco, not the one I normally go to. It was near us, and uh, and I just normally, it's like turn left up the hill or turn right down the hill. Well, I happened to turn left up the hill and went to this other branch, and they do things very differently there. Um, they, uh, the, because it's a small branch attached to a garage, I guess, that's probably why, they have to hoof people round it at great speed. I didn't realise it's all one way, but it's so close that you can't walk past each other. And there's nobody at the front saying, hey, this is one way, so everyone be really quick. And uh, you, 
you know what I mean? Just follow that track once. That none of that was explained. And I'm trying not to be difficult. I honestly, I had this thing whereby it, it was unfamiliar to me. I had to buy some ingredients. I didn't know where they were. So I was dawdling, right? I was looking at a thing, not realising, of course, that behind me, I mean, I don't even think anyone was racking up behind me, but I do respect that the staff were keen to make their system work without having necessarily articulated it to the understanding of someone who, to be fair to them, was probably <laughs> kind of not expecting to be completely cocking up the system and also dithering with a glove with one of those little uh, contact touchy things on the fingertip trying to look at my list on my phone. And um, I dawdled and then I got sort of told off for dawdling. They said, can you hurry up? And I was like, uh, sure. All I needed to say was, oh, I'm, I'm going as fast as I can. Am I, am I getting the system wrong? But I sort of felt a bit kind of un, a, a bit tilted. I felt a bit like, what, what, what have I done? What? And then I, d- I said, well, I can go round again, though, can I? Thinking if there's someone behind me, I can just go, I'll go round this load of shelves again, do a little double loop, and then I can come back to the bit I was looking at whilst letting the person behind me get on with it. And the lady said, yes. So I did that. And then a different guy came out um, and said, and bless him, he said, can I have a polite word? Which is often sort of the, the thing that comes before a not very polite word. He was polite about it, but then he said, you can't keep going round. And I said, she just told me I can. And he said, I've seen, I've been watching you. You keep going round these. I, said, I, I genuinely haven't. I've done it once. And then I can't remember what he said next, but I kind of panicked. And I, all of my, like my job is to be articulate and fluent with conversations in public. And it's my job because I love it and I'm good at it. And it all left me. It all left me. And I stood there and I think I said to him, I think I said, I don't know what you mean, but I'm hurried up. I said, I don't know what I don't understand what you mean, but I'm happy to hurry up. And so I just panicked and kind of ran around the rest of the aisles and finished my shop and got the fuck out of there. And then, of course, they had those big screens at the, you know, the the Panny D screens at the checkout. So I kind of went up and took my and put my bag for, you know, the shopping bag that I brought, my bag for life. And as I did that, the person behind the counter drew back quickly. And I was like, oh, God, I didn't mean to startle you. Fuck, fuck, and this is going tits up. I was probably a breath away from just one of those moments when you just throw everything down and run out of the shop. I'm out. I can't do it. I nearly had one of them. I went and sat in the car. I fucked up the pretty complex glove system that you've got to do where you do the, that glove has now touched the key, so now the key's got virus all over it because the gloves have touched all the shopping that's been put there and touched by who knows who. So now I've got to, I took one glove off to open the car door and now I've picked up the key and now I've got to, now the, the, the non-gloved hand is potentially virus as well. All of that faff, sat in the car, thought, am I going to have a cry? <laughs> am I going to have a cry in the car? I'm feeling very um jumpy. And I I remember thinking, am I agoraphobic now? Am I spending so much time at home that I am unable to deal with the outside world? Because I just had that kind of, fuck, 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 get home, get home before you have a panic attack or a cry. And I thought, I can't go and have a panic attack and a cry at home. I don't want to drive feeling panicky, but I, I, uh, I don't want to stay here. And nor do I want to go home and, you know, I don't like, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with crying in front of my children, but I don't want to have a panic attack cortisol dump depression cry in front of my kids that's still a thing i sneak away and do in private and rightly so it is the right of every englishman to have a private cry so i um i kind of just tried to kind of calm down and then drove home very carefully in that kind of a do you know i this is hey this is a psa that's public service announcement in the states i don't know what we call it here um announcement that's what we call it this is an announcement 
after you have a near miss when you're driving, immediately stop and or calm yourself down and be extra alert because accidents often happen, I seem to recall from some course or other. <laughs> it must have been a speed awareness course, but it wasn't karate, was it? Accidents often happen uh, just after a near miss because you're jittery. In the same way that like long motorway drives tend to be fairly safe, lots of accidents happen just when you're leaving home and just when you're getting home after a long drive. Similar thing. So I was on sort of high... I was on high tension and high alert. So I drove safely home and then sat in the car and had a bit of a bubble. And um, that means a cry. I don't know if anyone says a bit of a bubble. Um, a bit of a cry. And uh, it doesn't mean it's not vaping or anything. <laughs> a bit of a bubble. And a couple of hits from my enormous bong. Um, just sort of had a bit of a healthy cry and then went in and and uh, and uh, just got on with my life. But um, God really horrible and and really unnerving for someone as I say who like I'm supposed to be able to do this so I just thought I'd share that in case you I, I haven't heard the recent Ellis and John podcast but my wife pointed out that Ellis had something similar happen to him too getting told off for playing outside of the kid and I'm not I'm I, I'm not saying that the staff I've not got no complaint with the staff at all I'm not saying that they were small-minded or difficult simply that I didn't understand the difference in system in that branch compared to the one I would ordinarily go to and um I I so it's not a rant about like you know, people are pointing fingers so much as it's me going oh sorry unnamed Tesco staff members sorry I fucked up sorry I couldn't explain that I was fucking it up sorry that I went all wobbly and ran away and I suppose I'm just kind of sharing it to get it off my chest and say um you know, if you're experiencing this sort of thing as well, hey, don't worry. Uh, even someone as uh, psychologically robust as me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you can tell how ironic I'm being. I'm a fucking bag of wet lettuce mentally at the best of times. So I'm not even saying that. I'm not even saying, hey, guys, it could even happen to me. I'm saying, oh, God, I suppose we're all in this together. Fuck, go and have a little cry in your car if you need one. Um there, that'll do. <laughs> there we go. That's uh, absolutely classic Goldsmith content. Coming up next week on the episode with Brett Goldstein, Brett is someone who's listened to every single episode of this podcast. As a result, has listened to every single postamble and also knows me and knows way more about my internal life than I do about his. So hello, Brett. And I'm sorry uh, that you felt by calling it a non-com pod, I... Uh, tricked you into doing a regular comcom that is sort of what happened but it was an unconscious it wasn't a decision on my part it wasn't guile so much as my inability to just be myself it's a cracker of an episode mate you've got nothing to worry about i wonder if you will listen to your own episode uh, who knows thanks for listening you um you not brett well you brett as well but you everyone else cracker of an episode next week and some more excellent stuff coming your way besides bye for now join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.